As I began, I want to recommend a book to you. Um, it's a book I read a really, really long time ago. It's, it used to be in the bookshelf. We're out. I checked my inventory completely out. Um, but uh, it makes sense that we would be out because uh, this, is, this book should really be in every Christian's library. Um, you should know this book. You should be uh, conversant with this book. You should be able to hand this book to your friend uh, who's struggling maybe with assurance of salvation. That's what the book is about. It's about how can I be sure I'm a Christian by Don Whitney. Don Whitney was one of my seminary profs. Um, and uh, I know the man personally. How can I be sure I'm a Christian? Um, the Lord is talking to us tonight about assurance. And I just wanted to recommend this book. I, I can't recommend a book higher than this. Um, uh, so, go out, go out online and, and get the ebook. Um, how can I be sure I'm a Christian by Don Whitney? Uh, you won't be sorry. It is a great book. Um, as you might imagine, in my line of work, uh, sometimes people will ask me, well, Jim, do you think I'm a Christian? And it's a question that I always have the same answer. Um, you're asking the wrong person. Um, yes, I know I'm a religious professional. Um, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> Not so much in this day and age. Uh, we stack them all up. You're asking, who do we need to ask? Do we need to ask our local professional, our church pastor, or who should we be asking? We should be asking God, beloved. Um, I do not give assurance to anyone. Um, that's not my job. It's not my place. Uh, only God can give true assurance. I, I, I can't give assurance. I, I can't really see the heart. Uh, as I said to you so many times, I can fool you. You can fool me. There's a lot of reasons that people play at this thing called Christianity. They play games with it. So I just don't give Assurance. I know there are some out there who categorically and emphatically will pronounce you a Christian if you do these five things, or if you do these three things, or if you do this ordinance. They'll pronounce you a Christian. Um, I, I'm not comfortable doing that. Um, I've been in lay and vocational ministry for 30 years, and I've seen people come to Christ with great enthusiasm and subsequently walk away from Him denying him. I've seen men in the ministry walk away from Jesus. I know too many in this day and age of really, really poor theology and poor methodology uh, seemingly come to Christ with great excitement only to, to really settle into kind of a heart-dead, brain-dead, uh, going-to-church kind of Religion. Their lives are really no different from the unbelievers around them except for the charade on Sunday of attending, of attending church. Jesus said it would be this way. Um, if you go to Matthew 13, uh, you may remember the parable of the soils. You may remember the rocky soil and the, the, the soil that contained thorns. Let me just read a few verses from Matthew 13, verses 20 and 22. Jesus says, The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy. I've seen this many times. Why? Of course they're a Christian. They were so excited. They were so exuberant. They were so seemingly changed. 
Jesus goes on. Yet, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Of course, in Matthew 13, we see that same parable, or we see a, a similar parable about uh, the tares. We see the false among the true. Jesus spoke frequently about that. And of course, in Matthew 7, we know what Jesus told the religious uh, professionals, those that had these tremendous religious uh, resumes on the last day, they're going to tell Him how awesome they were. And Jesus is going to say, remember, He says there'll be many like that. They'll tell me how awesome they were. But Jesus will say, I do not know who you are. I do not know you. While many who doubt their salvation and shouldn't, many who don't doubt their salvation should. It's just a reality, beloved, in the modern church. I guess Judas would be the best scriptural example. Everybody knew Judas was a Christian. They knew it. Nobody doubted it. He not only preached the Gospel, he participated in some of the miracles. Everybody knew it. He was a Christian. But he wasn't, was he? It was for whatever reason, in his own mind, he was playing the game. He was playing the game. Now I want to interject here before I get too far. I'm not talking about people who were once saved and then lost their salvation. Judas was never a Christian. He was always a phony. He was always a fraud. He was always a hypocrite. I know there are some in the what is called Christendom today who teach that you can lose your salvation. And I want to say this as respectfully as I can. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay? They haven't really rightly divided the Word of God. The salvation of God's people is the sovereign work of God. He does it. That's why we are assured of our salvation. You know, a lot of people, my old denomination, they used to say, well, once saved, always saved. Well, that's a good saying, but the problem was almost nobody in our denomination really knew where that saying came from or why we could stand on it. We are saved and we remain saved because God's a Savior and because God is doing all the heavy lifting. Of course we must respond. Of course we must. We must respond. But our assurance is in God Himself. And so, I just want to make that clear. I think I hammer that uh, a lot sometimes. But I know there's a lot of bad teaching about this. When God grants eternal life, beloved, guess what? It's eternal. It's eternal. It's forever. And it's irrevocable. Yeah, there I said it. Irrevocable. That's it. It's irrevocable. So teaches the Word of God. So I want you to understand, we're not talking about people who had and then lost their salvation. The Bible does not teach this kind of prob- uh, possibility. So we're talking about people who for whatever reason, they're professing to be a Christian. They've never truly repented of their sin. They've never truly given their affections 
to Jesus. They've never truly surrendered to His Lordship. They really don't seek to honor Him and obey Him in their daily lives. But beloved, God wants His people to know that they belong to Him. It's one thing Peter is going to be talking to us about tonight. God wants us to know that we are His. I want to say this. Assurance is not only possible, it is normative. If you're a Christian, you, you know, yes, we know what the Word of God says. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Yes, there may be seasons when you need to examine yourself. I've gone through such a season. I read that book during that season. And that God used that book to, to confirm to me that I was His. Yes, there are seasons. But it's normative for you to know that you're a Christian and to go out into the world and live like it. God wants you to know you're His, so you'll live like you're His, right? That's the normative. I'm not saying that we don't have seasons when we're really examining our profession of faith. And this is what Peter's talking about. Peter is going to drive us to that tonight. You know what the Holy Spirit writes in 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may hope you're saved. Right? In order that you may postulate that you're a Christian. Right? What does He say? That you may know it. Of course, if you go read 1 John, I refer to 1 John a lot. It's a mirror. We look into 1 John. If we look like 1 John, there's little doubt we're a Christian. So that's what 1 John is about. This, this is what I always tell people, you know, when they ask me, I say, go read 1 John, come back, and let's talk. You go read 1 John, you come back, and let's talk some more. God wants us to have assurance of salvation. It's what we talked about in James chapter 2 a few weeks ago. It's what we talked about in Philippians chapter 2 a few weeks ago. Um, you remember what God taught us in those great passages? He says, man, you know, if the change has happened, if it's real, what's going to happen? Someone tell me. Josh knows. It's Sarah Groves, uh, those, great, those great lyrics from Sarah Groves' song, this U.S. artist in the States. If it's real, it spills out. This is what God says in every book of the Bible. If, it's, if the change has happened, if it's real, it spills out into the life. The biblically literate Christian doesn't have assurance simply because we did some religious stuff. Simply because I prayed a prayer. Simply because I was baptized. Simply because I walked down an aisle and made a profession of faith. The, the biblically literate Christian understands that it's much deeper than that. That's not the principal reason that we have assurance in Christ. We have assurance in Christ because we see it in our lives. We see that God is changing us. I hope you can see it, beloved. You're supposed to be able to see it. The Holy Spirit of God is changing us. We are growing in holiness. We are moving along that very imperfect line of sanctification. We are growing in sanctification. We are cooperating with the Holy Spirit. God's changing us into the image of Jesus. Beloved, we need to, need to understand that truth. Remember what we saw in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 two weeks ago. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And I think I said this to you and I want to say it again. 
The Christian works out what God has worked in. It's the eternal life of the believer overflowing into the temporal life of the believer. It's the spiritual life of the believer overflowing into the physical life of the believer. And it's the supernatural life of the believer overflowing into the natural life of the believer. That's what conversion always looks like in every book of the Bible. That's what it looks like. How did Paul say it to the Corinthians? If you are in Christ, you are brand new. We're not talking about perfection. That's not what I'm talking about. None of us, are, none of us attain perfection. I mean, I don't know that any of us are, are really, when you get down to it, actually very good at this thing called Christianity at all. That's what grace is for. Amen? We need it. We all urgently need a gracious Savior. Oh, guess what? We have one. And I think, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it was Phil, but someone, when I was talking about the attributes of God a couple of weeks ago, and I said, what's your favorite attribute? Someone said patience or long-suffering. I can't remember. It was you, wasn't it, Phil? Yes! He is long-suffering with me. I am a long-term project, right? I trust you are too. I got a long way to go. I've got miles to go with God. But isn't that a beautiful thing? He says, I'll complete the good work I've begun. My assurance and my hope is in Him. It's not in my goodness. It's not in my goodness. It's in the goodness of God I see coming out of me. Sometimes I don't understand or can explain. I didn't used to be like that. I used to react totally different than that. But God is at work in my life. Okay, I'm going to do it again. I know some of you are really, yeah. Well, shame on you if you're tired of hearing this, okay? Uh, I know that you know how I used to summarize 1 Peter chapter 1, the first 12 verses, because I've done it many, many, many times since we preached that text. Many, 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 many times. I love it. I love this. I love this refrain. I'm going to say it again, okay? But what probably most of you don't remember is how we summarize the next four verses. So I'm going to go through the summary of, the, of 1 Peter chapter 1, first 12 verses. God says, I've chosen you. I, I think I said this last week. God says, I've chosen you. I've redeemed you with my blood. I've sanctified you with my spirit. I've caused you to be born again. I've prepared an imperishable inheritance for you. I'm protecting you with my omnipotent power. I'm perfecting your faith in the trial. And I am saving your soul. Do you know what the next three or four verses say? There's always, beloved, there's always a therefore with God. Verse 13 says, therefore. Therefore what? Therefore what? God says, let it spill out. That's what He says. Let it spill out. Exactly what He says is, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Hope fully in My promises. Live as obedient children. Forsake your former lust and be holy for I am holy. With God there is always a therefore. There's a couple tonight. There's a couple tonight. The way that Peter introduced 1 Peter, it's very similar to the way he introduces 2 Peter. We saw it last week. He's talking about this awesome salvation that we have. This magnificent salvation. To borrow a word from last week's text. So I'm going to read 5-7 through seven again. 2 Peter chapter 1, 5-7 through Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, 
Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Verse 5, now for this very reason also, or as the New King James Version translates it, therefore. We saw last week the beauty of, of what God has done and how He has saved us. And we are, believe it or not, partakers of the divine nature. That phrase just completely blows my mind. You know, he's going to talk about false teachers in chapter 2. And I want you to, you need to understand this. He starts off, you need to, you need to, to understand how awesome your salvation is. This is how Peter starts. And tonight he's talking about, you need to understand how life-changing your sanctification is. As he begins to confront false teaching in chapter 2, he's saying, remember your salvation. Remember that it's from God. Remember that it's awesome. And then he says, remember your sanctification. Remember your sanctification. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Since God has saved us like this, verses 1 through 4, by His gift of faith, verse 1, by His gift of grace and knowledge, verse 2, by His divine power, divine calling, divine glory and excellence, verse 3, and through His promises by which we become partakers uh, of the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world, verse 4, Peter says, therefore, apply all diligence in your Faith. Christianity has never been a passive endeavor. I know I say this to you all the time. It is, it, it is not a passive endeavor. It's the antithesis of passivity. Although, if you observe many Christians, you, you would see is with respect to their, their Christianity, there's, there is great passivity. Beloved, how can we be passive? If we are born again, if we are truly partakers of the divine nature, how in the world could we be passive about that? That is not rational. It is not logical. It makes no sense. That we could be passive in our Christianity. It's why Jesus says, man, if you look warm, just I'll spit you out of my mouth. It's the antithesis of who God is and what the Gospel says. Peter says, apply, apply with all diligence. Again, work out what God's worked in. Work out what God has worked in. It, it simply means to, to bring our effort alongside what God is doing. That's what sanctification is. God has invaded our life and we are His partner as He often drags us into sanctification. As He drags us along. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. He says, So don't lose a minute in building on what you have been given. This is what Peter is saying. You call yourself a Christian? Build on it. Build on this great salvation that you have. Build on it. Let it spill out, beloved. Let it spill out for the world and the church to see that Jesus may be glorified in your life. I tell you what, I just filled out my questionnaire for my 40th high school reunion. Yikes. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to go back. But I do know this. Those who knew me then, they would not know me now. Of course, they couldn't even recognize me now. I know it would be hard for you to believe, but I used to have really long hair. Uh, I was kind of a hippie guy. No, not really. But I did have long hair. But um, 
what I put, it said, I think the questionnaire said, outstanding events. Guess what I put? I said, Jesus invaded my life when I was 28. And he turned it upside down. And he lets me preach the gospel. And it's awesome. That's basically what I said. That's basically what I said. The Lord has changed me. The Lord has changed me. And I know I could get many testimonies like that among you. God exhorts us to be diligent in our faith to expend energy. Expend energy to, to, to do what we say we believe, to, to exert proactive, purposeful, and intense effort in living our faith. Let me ask you, beloved, are you? Are you? Are you expending energy in living out what you profess to believe? You know, I, I, yeah, I know, if you've been around a while, you're tired of me talking about it, but you know, Hebrews 12.1, there's a huge therefore in Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews 11, God defines and illustrates salvation, or pardon me, saving faith. He, devi- he defines it. He illustrates it. You know, over and over and over and over. I think there are 13, 12, 13 illustrations there. And then in, in, in chapter 12, verse 1 of Hebrews, he says, therefore, that's how I want you to live. <laughs> I want you to go do this. That's what the Lord is saying to us. Tonight, the Apostle Paul said it perfect in Philippians 3, 12-14. He says, I press on. That's really what Peter's saying. I press on to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I shared that verse with you a week or two ago. I'm going to continue on with the next few verses. Paul says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Does that define or does that describe your Christianity? Are you pressing on in it? Or are you passive in it? If you're passive in it, beloved, I need to caution you if not warn you. If you become passive in your Christianity, that is... There's something unhealthy spiritually going on. We are to expend energy in making much of Jesus. This is what God is calling us in our text tonight to press on in godliness, the byproduct of which, as we will see in verses 8 through 10, is our assurance. As we press on and, you know. If you ask a biblically informed, maturing Christian, what is your assurance? They will never say, well, I prayed a prayer. They'll never say that. They'll never say, well, I joined the church. They won't ever say that. They won't say, well, I walked down an aisle and I made a profession of faith. They won't say that. They won't say, I'm a member of XYZ church. They won't say that. They'll say, God is at work in my life. I see it. I see it. And He's taken my affections. I no longer love the things of this world. I love Him. You know, that's, to me, the core definition of a Christian. It's that change in affection, right? <laughs> it's that change. It's that change in affection. Peter says, press on in moral excellence, meaning live a life of virtue, goodness, righteousness, uprightness, integrity, honesty, morality. Live a virtuous life. Let me ask you, you call yourself a Christian. Are you pressing on in these things, beloved? Peter says, press on in knowledge. As we said last week, Peter is pushing us to true knowledge. As as he says in verse 8, the knowledge of Christ. 
We're not talking about IQ here. We're not talking about intelligent quotient. We're talking about God quotient. Do you know God? And do you live like you know God? <laughs> That's really the question. It's not about intellect. Peter says, press on in self-control. You know what that means? Mastering uh, your desires and your passions. The Christian is not governed by, by his passions. He governs them with the help of the Holy Spirit exercising discipline and willpower and restraint. Peter says, press on in perseverance. Meaning a patient, steadfastness, endurance, and constancy. We go forward with God, even if it's hard, even if it's risky, even if it's costly. We go on with God. It's perseverance. Peter says, press on in godliness, meaning reverence, respect, and piety toward God. It's one who builds his life around God in the words of God. Peter says, go on in godliness. He says, go on in, in uh, press on in brotherly kindness, meaning to, to deal kindly with our brothers and sisters in Christ, being thoughtful, helpful, gentle, benevolent, compassionate, and sympathetic. Peter says, press on. Finally, he says, press on in love. And you guys know what this is, that love of will. You say, Jim, well, I don't love that guy. And I'll say, I don't love him either. You know? And I know I'm hard to love sometimes. You just ask my wife. <laughs> but you know, God is calling us to love people that are sometimes unlovely, right? It's that love of volition. I, I, it's my will to love this person who's hard to love. This is the kind of love that God has called us to. It's a selfless and sacrificial love. I'm not just simply talking about feelings here. It's great when, you, when we feel like we love our brothers and sisters, but sometimes we don't. That's when we choose to love them, right? This is what God's talking about. You remember what John says in 1 John 3.14, we know we have passed out of death and into life because we tolerate the brethren, right? Is that what it says? Because we love them. We love them. I mean, this is the, the Bible's actually saying here, here's evidence of your regeneration. Evidence of your regeneration. You're loving the body of Christ. It's what Jesus said. You know, Jesus said, men will know you're mine because you love one another. It's the, maybe the principal hallmark of true conversion. The implicit exhortation in these verses, as is it is in all the New Testament, is to go on with God, to go forward, to press on in all of these characteristics, to press on in all of these virtues. Verse 8 and 9. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. There's an old saying where I come from. I don't know if you know this, this saying. It's, uh, if you're standing still, you're losing ground. Does everybody know this saying? If you're... You never just stay the same in anything. You have to expend energy in your marriage, in your work, in the church, in your faith. If you're just treading water, you're losing ground. Biblical Christianity is always a great effort against the cultural tide. It, 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 it always is. The born-again Christian is like a spiritual salmon. We are swimming upstream. 
I mean, any old dead fish can float downstream. It takes an alive fish to go upstream. And that's really the analogy. That's what we're talking about here. Peter says, the children of God, they're headed upstream. <laughs> they're headed upstream. And Peter says, verse 8, if you're pressing on in these seven virtues, then you are not useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this is a reference to a born-again believer. Uh, we know this. In Scripture, God's children are never characterized as useless or unfruitful. And in Scripture, to be in the true knowledge of God certainly is to, to, to know to know God. I just want to point it out to you that this is the fifth time that Peter has used the word knowledge because when he begins to talk about when he begins to talk about false teachers in chapter 2, the whole push and thrust of, of chapter 1 is the true knowledge of God. The true knowledge of God. The true knowledge of God. Do you know God? Are, are you apt to be deceived by false teachers? Do you know the Word of God? Can you stand firm on the Word of God? Can you defend the Word of God? Is it hidden in your heart? Is it on your tongue? Do you know it? This is what Peter's pushing his first century readers and also us too. Knowing the Word of God. The true knowledge of God. So in essence, the first 11 verses of the book, Peter is saying you must know and understand how magnificent your salvation is and you must know and understand how life-changing your sanctification is, as I said to you earlier. Beloved, if God is in your life, it will look like God is in your life. If it doesn't look like God's in your life, He's not. Let me say it this way. Most likely, He's not. I know we have dull seasons and uh, self-absorbed seasons. But if it doesn't look like God's in your life, He's not in your life. Peter says, if these virtues are evident and increasing, as you live out your faith, if you're pressing on in these qualities, you will have assurance that you belong to God. Again, our assurance is not some religious thing we did when we were eight. It may be valid. Praise God. It may not be. I've seen this many times. Probably some of you, if not all of you, have seen it too. Someone who seemed to come to Christ and now you can't, the FBI can't find them. They're so far away from the church. For you non-Americans, FBI is the Federal Bureau of Investigation. A detective can't find them. So beloved, I hope we hear what he's saying to us. Are these qualities in your life and are they increasing in your life? If they are, you have assurance of your salvation. God is really calling us to carpe diem here. It's to that seize the day, seize the day thing. You know, seize the day with moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. It's what Paul said to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6:12, lay hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. Lay hold of it and live it. Then you will be assured of your salvation. 
you, you don't hang eternity on some event. That event may have been genuine. Praise God for that event. But we don't hang our hats on an event. We hang our hats on who we are in Christ. We hang our hats on what God is doing in my life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. You know, that's what I tell people. You know, someone who's really struggling, I'll, I'll, end, up at, I'll end up in Philippians chapter 2. Work it out. Go work it out. Go work it out with God. It doesn't matter what I say. My opinion doesn't matter. Only God's opinion matters. Go work it out with God. Verse 9, the Holy Spirit says, if you lack these seven virtues, you are blind or short-sighted having forgotten your purification from your sins. In other words, if one claims to be a Christian but there's no outward evidence of it, he has no real assurance that he's a Christian at all. He can't see the tr his true spiritual nature. He doesn't really know if he's a Christian or not because it's not alive and well in his life. He may well be a Christian who has fallen into sin and a season of dullness and complacency, as this verse seems to indicate. Or, as we know from many other passages in the Bible, if one claims to be a Christian and there's no outward evidence, there's no manifestation of it, there's no fruit of it, most likely he's not a Christian at all. This is the clear Word of God. Beloved, the point here is that one who claims to belong to God but does not live as if he belongs to God has no real assurance that he belongs to God. This is what Peter is saying to us. And I'm going to repeat that because this is really the text. In summary, in one sentence, the point here is that one who claims to belong to God but does not live as if he belongs to God has no real assurance that he belongs to God. It's what I have to say sometimes to professing Christians who are in obvious sin and I, I, I commend this to you. What I'm about to share with you, I commend this to you. When you encounter a friend or a family member or someone who's in gross sin or obvious sin uh, in their life, it's undeniable. It's, it's, it's in their life. In fact, you've probably talked to them about it. Um, I don't say your sin categorically reveals you're not a Christian. Because if we read our Bibles, we understand that a Christian can sin greatly, right? We understand that a believer can sin greatly. I mean, King David would be the quintessential scriptural example. We understand that. We can sin, and we can sin greatly. Let me restate that. We do sin, and sometimes we sin greatly. This is the teaching of the Bible. But what I say to a professing Christian who is in blatant and deliberate sin, as it broke my heart to say to a person a couple of years ago who had, I had previously baptized, I say, based upon what I see in your life, you can have no assurance that your profession of faith in Christ was genuine. This is what I say. I don't say you're not a Christian. I don't say that. They may well be a Christian. I say you can have no biblical assurance that you are. Because the sin is rampant in your life. And as you might suspect, it broke my heart to say that to this person. 
because I had baptized them. But I think love demanded it. I think a knowledge of the Word and love demanded that I speak truth to this person. Not to give them false assurance. Beloved, don't ever give anyone assurance. You don't know. You can't know. Point them to God. Point them to God. And point them to the Word. And Peter's giving us a lesson tonight on assurance. Do you see sanctification going on in your life? This is what Peter's saying. Do you see it? Do you see it? Peter says Christians look like Christians, and because we look like Christians, we have assurance we're Christians. <laughs> That's what Peter is saying. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter tells us there are two really good reasons to diligently practice the seven virtues that are listed here. One, we will make our calling and election sure. King James, New King James and ESV uses the term election, which is a, it's a, the meaning there is the same, being chosen. And the second benefit or reason is, is that we will never stumble, meaning fall away. As one paraphrase of the text says, we will never lose our firm footing. Of course, Peter is not implying that a true Christian can ultimately fall away. He is simply underscoring the fact that the true Christian never will. The true Christian never will. The true Christian will never fall away as he presses on with God. Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. And as we've seen a number of times in our study of Peter's letters, Peter loves to highlight God's sovereign call in salvation, namely election. Um, you know how I love this wonderful and beautiful biblical truth, but I will restrain myself. We handled this truth in some detail in our first three sermons in 1 Peter. So I'm not going to uh, revisit all of that. I would simply say, as I've invited you to do in the last few weeks, if you have questions about this doctrine, um, go download the first three sermons of 1 Peter. We look at it quite extensively. We look at the word chosen, the biblical word chosen, the biblical word predestined, the biblical word foreknowledge, the biblical word foreknown. We don't, we don't have a denominational spin here. Our goal is always simply to let God speak from His text. Just speak from the text. That's all we, we, we seek to do is to let God speak from the text. So if you have questions, obviously come ask me. I'm always available to answer your questions. But those three sermons might be helpful. I just want to say election is a weighty doctrine, uh, but it's a beautiful one if it's rightly understood. And as I always do, it's okay. I give you permission to struggle with it. It's okay to struggle with it. It's not okay to ignore it. It's not okay to edit it. It's not okay to reinterpret it. It's not okay to spin it. If you struggle with it, struggle with it. Get before the Word, get before the Spirit of God and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. That's how I learned it. No man taught me this. Oh, I can read good theologians, yeah. But it was really sweating over the text and asking God to teach me 
and I trust that this is how many of you come to truth as well, you know, it's not true just because some preacher says it. Many times it's not true. You've got to go to the Word of God. And you've got to be taught by the Spirit of God. In Romans 8.29, Paul says, he tells us, for whom God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. Therefore, it follows that the reassuring evidence of our election is Christ-likeness. Romans 8.29 Peter says, confirm your election by standing in your faith and pressing on in these virtues. We could simply say going on in sanctification. In verse 11, Peter says, For in this way your entrance into the eternal kingdom will be abundantly supplied to you. What is God saying here? Simply this, that as we actively pursue Christ's likeness each day, we will not only have assurance of our salvation in this life, we will have assurance of reward in the next. That's really what Peter is saying in that verse. As we pursue godliness, as we go on in our sanctification, as we cooperate with what God is doing in our lives, we will not only have assurance of our salvation in this life, we will have assurance of our reward in the next life. When I, when I saw this in the text, I, I, when I run, I sometimes listen to, I listen to sermons, I listen to music and things, but I listen to a sermon about the parable of the minas and the parable of the talents because when I saw this in the text, beloved, there are so many Christians who do not take this serious. God says, I will reward your socks off if you are a good steward. There's so many Christians who don't seem to take God at His Word. They don't really seem to... You know, I've, I, I've heard some Christians say, well, Jesus is enough. Well, of course Jesus is enough. Of course He is, but Jesus is the one who told the parables. He said, be a good steward and I'll reward you. It's like, piety run amok. I'm too good to be concerned about rewards. I think this is offensive to God. God's the one that created rewards. He says, I'll reward you. We don't do it in some mercenary way, beloved, of course. But He's made these promises and we, we know He wants us to be good stewards. He's called us to be good stewards. So I wanted to ask you, are you building with wood, hay, and straw? or with gold, silver, and precious stones. And I don't have time to talk about it anymore. Um, Lord, uh, the Lord wants us, beloved, to be assured of our salvation. He doesn't want us to be in doubt, to be in fear, to be in, in anxiety. Yes, there are seasons when we need to examine ourselves. I've gone through these seasons. And I've come out much stronger. I've come out much stronger. So there are those times. But the normative function for the true believer is to have full assurance. To be fully persuaded. And then, as I always tell you, go out that door and live like you're fully persuaded. Live like you're a child of God. Uh, in closing, I just want to share, John MacArthur uh, compiled a list of eight benefits of being fully assured of your salvation. I'm going to share them with you quickly. Assurance, it elicits praise and love toward God. Amen. Assurance introduces joy into our earthly duties. Assurance helps to generate zeal in obedience and service. Assurance helps us to get the victory in temptation. Assurance helps us to be content with our worldly lot. 
Assurance gives us endurance and hope in the midst of suffering. Assurance uh, helps to pacify a troubled conscience. Assurance removes all fear of death. Praise God. Of course, He wants you to have assurance. Christ's likeness yields up the fruit of assurance, and assurance yields up the fruit of a life lived well for Jesus. I'm going to say it again. Christ's likeness yields up the fruit of assurance, and assurance yields up the fruit of a life lived a life lived well for Christ. Fully assured Christians, I know you've heard me say this before, I love to say this. Fully assured Christians are the most dangerous people on the planet. God uses them to turn the world upside down. God uses fully persuaded, fully assured Christians to turn the world upside down. One life at a time as we share the Gospel. And as we do what God has called us to do. So beloved, next time someone asks you to give them assurance that, that they're a Christian, I, I urge you not to do it. I urge you to never do that again. I urge you to push them to the Word of God. I, I urge you to point them to God. Again, your, your opinion doesn't matter. Only God's opinion matters. Point them to 1 John. Go read 1 John. Go read it. Do you see it? Do you see that in your life? Do you see the teachings of 1 John alive and well in your life? I'm going to close with a quote from John Piper. Oh, how serious is the matter of authenticity in the Christian life. A decision for Christ is not nearly so crucial as a life lived for Christ. Only reality in the life counts with God. And I want to make clear we understand. I'm not talking about perfection of righteousness. I'm talking about the increasing presence of righteousness. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not talking about the perfection of righteousness in my life, but I'm talking about the increasing presence of righteousness in my life. This is what sanctification is. This is what Peter is saying. He's saying, go on in these qualities. These qualities should be in you and they should be increasing in you. He says, go on. And I'm just going to close with verse 10 and 11. Peter says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, these seven virtues and others, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, some here may have genuine questions about their own salvation. Thank You, Father, that that's an issue that can be resolved as we simply cry out to You, as we simply get into Your Word and study it for ourselves. Father, I pray that there would be none here who would hang eternity on what some religious professional told them or on some religious thing they did. Lord, we simply don't find that in the Bible. Our assurance is that You have entered our lives and You are changing us. 
Our assurance is that the Holy Spirit is bringing us into conformity with Jesus. Our assurance is Your promise that You will complete the good work You've begun. Oh God, I pray that that would be our assurance. Nothing less than that. The work of God in my life. Not some religious thing I did. Lord, thank You that You answer this question. You are the answer. (laughs) You and what You do in our life, it's the answer. We thank You, Father, that as we saw last week, You lavish every good thing on us. Every good thing is ours. Lord, I pray that we would lay hold of it and live it. That we would be the most dangerous people on the planet. For the glory of Jesus, we pray, Father. It's in His name. Amen.